0: Morning. morning. You all sat down so quick. Normally, I buy myself 15 seconds by saying, please take your seats, and I can get my stuff together. So. so next time, don't sit down until I tell you to. You can sit down for Trace. He doesn't need the extra time. I'm the one that needs it. Well, welcome to Pillar Church of Oceanside here. Let me, uh, there we go. My name is Michael. I'm one of the elders. I, might not have seen me up here for a while, so uh, Trace has been leading us through the, the book of John. So if you've got your Bibles, would you open it up to John chapter 10, that's where we're going to start. So last week, Pastor Trace led us through the first half of John 10. Does anyone remember what this was about, if you were here? Yeah, Jesus being uh, the shepherd, right? He's the, he's the gate to the sheep, he's the chief shepherd, and a wonderful message, but it's, we, we have this historical idea of Jesus Taking care of the sheep, right? This is, even if you're not a Christian or if you don't spend much time in church, you've probably heard these things, right? This idea of sheep and Christians and all these all these imagery that's going together. So Jesus is, he's actually going to go somewhere else. So from last week to today's message is, is we're going to have a few months in between here, right? So the narrative is going to take a jump by a couple of months, but he's going to stay on this theme. So we, we start with that to, to put that in the back of your mind. If this is your first time here with us, uh, Trace, we start this in January? So we've been working uh, line by line through the book of John since January. We're in chapter 10 now, so uh, it won't take you long to catch up if you wanted to go home tonight and spend 30 minutes and catch up here. But what we're trying to do is we're examining the life of Jesus. And what we've entitled this series is is Believe. Because John said, look, I I wrote this book that you may believe, right? So he's telling us the story about Jesus. He's telling us the story of God's son and his account of what happened when when God put on human flesh and he came down and lived amongst us right so I said look I want to write this so that you can believe so he John is very unique amongst all the other gospels there's four gospels but John is is painting Jesus in a different light right so it's this idea when you read all four of them you can see Jesus from all these different angles so right now again so we're kind of exploring this idea of Jesus as the shepherd but if you're taking notes, um, I have entitled. so uh, Trace and I both like titles for messages because it helps keep our, our thoughts together, but this one would be called Tell and Show. And your first thought would be, it's like, hey, buddy, it's show and tell. <laughs> one, I'd ask you to stay out of my affairs and my business. I'm calling it <laughs> Tell and Show, so leave me alone with that. But two, this is the order. You're going to see this is actually by design. is because Jesus is going to do something here. So today we're going to talk about Tell and Show. But... Before we get into this, uh, Trace hit this a little bit last week, but I want to read you something to, to kind of have a historical understanding of Israel and sheep and sheep herding, and what does this look like in the time of Jesus. So I'm going to read uh, from a, uh, a commentary on the book of John. by This is Colin uh, uh commentary. But listen to this. I think this is fascinating, uh, fascinating. It says, speaking of Trace's text last week about Jesus being the door to the sheep gate. It says to appreciate this parable, it is important to understand its setting in a small Jewish village. Bailey says that most village families owned a few sheep, and their houses had small walled courtyards where the sheep were kept overnight. Because each family had only uh, a few sheep, a shepherd for each household was not economical. So several households would share one shepherd to look after their sheep. After the shepherding was done by a son or daughters from one of these families, if such a person was not available, a hired hand was employed. Early each morning, the sheep would be taken out to graze in the open country. The shepherd moved from house to house, and because he was known to the doorkeepers, they opened their courtyard doors to allow him to call out to the sheep. The sheep knew his voice and eagerly followed him into the open country to graze. The walls of the courtyard could be as high as six and a half feet high. One who was not the shepherd or who, and one who had ulterior motives would often climb over the walls because the doorkeeper would not admit him, and of course the sheep would not recognize him and uh, recognize his call, and would flee from him. So that's that's an interesting background, right? So these families living together would share a shepherd, right? So, hey, I have two sheep. You know, I'm not going to go out there and shepherd these guys all day. So they get together on this little co-op, right? And so the doorkeeper opens up the door. They recognize the sound of the shepherd, and the sheep follow him, right? So this is all of Lax Weeks. But we need to keep this in our head as we explore our passage today. And, of course, if a stranger comes... And what's the sheep going to do to that stranger's voice? Yeah, it's going to make a bunch of noise. It's going to run the other direction. Have you ever seen someone else try to call your dog? What happens? Well, unless you have one of those dogs that just go to anyone, right? It's pandemonium, right? They don't react. We don't have a dog, but my daughter loves to dog sit against our will. So she always volunteers to take people's animals in for a week or two. And we never know what we're going to get. And for whatever reason, my daughter's friends all have dogs that are ha- high-maintenance. And so they love her and they hate everybody else. And so she'll go to school or she'll go take a shower. And then this poor creature's left there with me, like, staring at it. And I'm trying to be an alpha, but I was in the Air Force, right? So alpha does not come naturally. So I'm, <laughs> you know, so I'm trying to exert some kind of dominance. And the dog just, not a single one of these guys have ever responded to me. Is that true, Hannah? They only respond to her. And I always liken this to Jesus and the shepherds, like, these guys don't know my voice, so I, I forgive them. But this is the idea, right? So these animals get skittish, and so are people. Now, so that's all good. This is great historical knowledge. But now we need to think about what the Jews think about them being sheep in the eyes of the Lord. So I want to read a couple of scriptures. One of these traits hit last week. But Jeremiah 50, verse 6 says this, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From uh, mountain to hill, they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. So an ancient Israelite, they look at themselves as lost sheep that have been scattered, right? They've come out of captivity. They've been driven into slavery. They've been freed, right? So now they're under Roman oppression. Uh, Jesus is on the scene, and the Romans are actually in charge of everything, right? So th- they consider themselves the lost sheep. In Ezekiel 34:15 through 16, it says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. The fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So now, catch this, the Lord himself is saying, I will be their shepherd, right? So when someone comes and says, I'm the shepherd, what are they proclaiming? That they're they're God. Because it says here, the Lord says, I myself will be the shepherd. So when Jesus said, I am... The shepherd, what, what is he saying there? Yeah, that's right. Are you picking up what's happening here? So these things might be lost on us. When Jesus said, oh, I'm the shepherd, it's like, oh, that sounds nice. What is he really saying? Yeah, I'm the God of Ezekiel, chapter 34, when God said, I will be your shepherd. Micah, chapter five, verses four and five, says "And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty in the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. This is talking about the seed of David being the shepherd of this great flock. So, this is the scene we have going on here. Jesus is saying all these things. He just had this conversation about him and the sheep. And now, let's go to John chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 22. We're going to read to the end of the chapter, but I want to read just the first two verses John 10, 22 to 24. And this is the start of our text. It says, At this time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So if you haven't read John or you haven't been joining us, Jesus has been going around uh, pretty much proclaiming that he's the son of God. He's been doing miracles. He's doing all these things that Jesus is known for. So they finally corner him and says, hey, if you're the Christ, if you're the chosen one, just tell us plainly, right? So... We have the historical scene. Now let's set the scene of what's happening here. So you notice it said the Feast of Dedication. Does anyone know what the Feast of Dedication is? Hanukkah, Hanukkah, right? So this is not one of uh, Moses' prescribed uh, uh, feast days here. So this is a a newer thing that's happening. Interesting side note to history buffs that people freak out that this isn't John historians because this is one of the earliest mentions of Hanukkah being celebrated, so it's kind of cool. Originally went by the name of Feast of Dedication. Now, it says it was wintertime, so Israel in wintertime, it's it's a very rainy season, and they're meeting in this colonnade of Solomon. And what this is, this is actually where the early church would end up meeting in a a few short years. This is where early Christians would go to hear and teach about Jesus. So that's kind of cool, but it's a covered area to protect them from the elements and the storm. Uh, I'm big on imagery like that, so when we're reading this text, think about this, right? So it's raining outside, it's cold, it's Hanukkah season. And the Jews, it says here, corner Jesus. And they say, look, man, if you're the Christ, just tell us. Just tell us plainly. Let's keep going. Verse 25. Jesus answered them and said, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Okay, big chunk of text there, but if you go back to 25, remember the question was, is if you're the Christ, just tell us. 25, Jesus says, look, I told you, and you didn't believe. Right, so we can stop right there. Tell us. He's like, I did. So if if you're playing along with our story here, I'm going to recap every time Jesus has told these guys. John 3.13, he told Nicodemus that he was the son of man that has come down from heaven. 5.17, he told the Jewish leaders that he does the works of the Father. He said that all that God has done, he's entrusted to Jesus, and he's entrusted all judgment to him, and that Jesus would raise the dead. He told the people in John 7.28 that he was sent by God. In 8.56, he said that before Abraham was, I am, he called himself the name of God. And then he called himself the good shepherd in chapter 10, identifying himself with the God of the Old Testament, who was Israel's shepherd. So has Jesus told the Jews who he was? 100%, right? Hey, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Jesus like, I told you, right? So now we have this backlog. So when the Jews are asking him, tell us plainly, are they asking him because they want to worship him and hang out with him as the Messiah? No, there's an ulterior motive here, right? So our story is being set up. They want him to openly, plainly say it because what do they want to do to this man? They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. They want to stone him. So we got to get this in our head. This is a a sting operation, right? Hey, we met him in the the temple. Hey, man, just tell us plainly. If you could say it right into this recorder for me real quick. Who who are you again? Right? So this is what's happening here. Okay. Now, he goes on to say, he says... In the end of 25, he says, the works that I do in my Father's name also bear witness about me, but you don't believe. So he said, I told you, and I've showed you, right? So the, the idea of works, that, that's a very, you know, we, I call it kind of a Christianese term. This is the idea of, of what you do, right? What are works? It's, it's just things you do. Jesus said, look, I told you, and I've showed you, right? So how did he show them? Your, what was the first miracle Jesus did in John? He turned water into wine, right? Has anyone here ever done that? No. You've turned cash into wine, but you have not done the water to wine, right? He read the Samaritan's woman mail. Remember, he met this woman of Samaria. He was She was drawing out water, and he told her, every, she said, everything I've ever done. He healed the nobleman's son. He healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He called himself, oh, I copied that wrong. He fed 5,000 people. Remember, he walked on the water. You remember recently when the blind man, the man born blind, received the sight? Who else can do this but the Son of God, right? So again, Jesus said, what more could I possibly tell you? You've asked me to tell you plainly. I've told you time and time again, and I've showed you through what I've done time and time again. Now, in in verse 26, it enlightens us to why they can't believe. Now, this historical moment, this is where this is all going to come into hopefully to focus for everybody. 26, he says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Interesting. So, why? again, I like people repeating this back to me. Why can't they believe? Because they're not his sheep. Now, if you're an Israelite, he's speaking to the Jews, is this a compliment or an insult? Insult, insult right? Because Jesus here is saying, look, I'm, I'm the shepherd. You know, If I'm God, and then he has the audacity to tell the Jews, you're not my sheep. Who are the one people on this planet who thought they were God's sheep? And who's the one people Jesus is telling you're not my sheep? This is a very inflammatory comment, right? So I'm trying to paint the picture of here of what's actually happening here on the ground. We read over this stuff, and it's like me walking up to a marine and saying, "You're not a marine." You know, what's going to happen to me if I just keep going down this road? <laughs> Probably won't be able to speak out of my mouth for a couple days, right? Right? Because this is an insult. You don't, you don't, you don't take away someone's identity. Right? You don't say these things. So Jesus is saying that. He said, "You don't believe because you're not my sheep." Now, let's pull back and let's have this conversation in real time, right? Tell us plainly. I did. How? Well, I told you. Well, what else? Well well I showed you. And here's the reason is you're not my sheep. You don't belong to God. Right, that would be a modern day English translation. Now, if you're playing along, Jesus did tell them already who they belonged to. Who did Jesus say they belong to? Their father. Who was Jesus, who, who was their father according to Jesus? The devil. the devil. He said, you belong to Satan. You belong to your father, the devil. So how do you think this is going to play out for Jesus? Do you think these guys are going to be cool and just walk away? No. No. This whole time, these guys who thought they were trusting in the true shepherd, Jesus hits them with the reality that you're not the sheep. Right? The very people that belong, the promises of God, are standing before the king of the universe. The one who made these promises... And he's saying, "I, you don't know me. You don't recognize my voice. That's right. You are sheep, but the reason you don't recognize my voice is because you don't belong to me. Right? These are, these are very hard sayings. Now, you may be asking, why doesn't God allow them to see? Right? These are the Jews. If, if you go back to John, Jesus says, look, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. This is his mission statement. Like, Why did Jesus come to the earth? He said, I, I've come for the Jews. But why didn't God allow these people to see? Well, the answer is, is Jesus has to be killed. He's on his way to being crucified, right? So Trace told us a couple weeks ago that Jesus is less than a year away from being crucified. Every time Jesus started to get popular, something, something really interesting happens. So he feeds the 5,000 people. What happens to Jesus' ministry after he feeds the 5,000? Does it grow or does it shrink? It starts to grow, right? This is big. And it's, it's happening so much that people are following him everywhere. That's when Jesus starts to have to walk on water to get away from people, right? He's like, he is being thronged. Everywhere he goes, he's a celebrity. I dare say that if you feed 5,000 hungry people, you too will gain quite a, a following. But what does Jesus do right after that? He tells people that you need to eat my body and drink my blood. Very hard saying. He loses a ton of disciples. If that's the first time you've heard this, ask me later. You've got to take that into context. It sounds weird if you've never heard this before. But Jesus' ministry thins right out. I say by design, right? Because Jesus, he's not here to win a popularity contest. He's not here to become king through, through some kind of competition, right? He, he's got one mission, and what is that? To die. He was a man who was born to die. So that's why God is not calling, he's not allowing all these Israelites to see. We're going to see this happen in the book of Acts, When thousands upon thousands get saved, right? So the early church, was it full of Gentiles or Jews? It's full of Jews, right? It's a Jewish church. They're uh, they're Jewish converts. Eventually, it'll head out to the Gentiles. But these very people that are blind right now will see after Jesus dies. Pretty exciting. But I think during this moment, God is not allowing everybody to see who Jesus is. Okay, let's keep looking at these things. Verse 28 It says, I give eternal life, and they will never perish, and and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, I'm not sure if you're picking up what Jesus did here in 28. He says, no one will snatch them out of whose hand? My hand. Who does he say in 29? The Father's hand. What is he doing here? He's making them one, right? Right. He's saying, look, I have the same ability to protect people as the Father does. Now, this I and the Father, one, are interesting. This is not talking about the oneness of the Trinity. This will come later on in the book of John. This is actually saying, I and the Father, in the original language, it reads like this. I and the Father, one, have the same ability to protect people that are in our hands. That's what he's saying here, right? So, again, is Jesus making a claim for deity right now? Yes. Yes. So he hits him again. <laughs> it keeps coming. Tell us plainly. Well, you may say this is not very plain. I would say to the average Jewish person this is 100% plain. Right? This is uh, again another slap in the face. So, what's the people's response? What? They they want to kill him, right? If we keep reading here, they want to they want to stone him. Sorry, I my next scripture is going here so i'm going to do this manually so let's uh pick it up from verse 31 says the jews picked up stones again to stone him and jesus answered them i have shown you many good works from the father for which one of them are you going to stone me? the jews answered him it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself god then jesus answered them is it not written in your law i said you are gods if he called them gods to whom the word of god came and the scripture cannot be broken Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though that you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. They sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. All right. So they cried out blasphemy. Okay. So Jesus also here, he starts to use a scriptural defense of why he said, here, what I said is not blasphemy. He's going to set up a defense here. Now, this to me is ultimately fascinating because is Jesus the son of God? Should that be enough? I mean, you don't need a defense here, right? He's, he goes on at the very end and said, look, if you don't believe me, just look what I've done. Believe the works, right? Like, I mean, who else can possibly do this? But he starts off with a scriptural defense. He says, look, in your word, is, I have said, you are gods. Has anyone ever read this scripture before? Have you ever heard God call some a human being gods? Well, this actually does pop up in the Bible. This is found in Psalm 82.6. He said, I, I said, you are gods as sons of the Most High, all of you. If you remember back into the Old Testament, does anyone remember a man named Moses? In Exodus 7:1, God said to Moses, He says, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So Jesus is saying, like, look, somebody calling themselves uh, God or like God, it's found in your in your law, it's found in your Bible. Like, go to Psalms, go to Exodus, like uh, this is not blasphemy. God does, He's done this, right? This is not this is not something new. As a matter of fact, if you go back to John chapter 8, these very Jews called themselves the Son of God in chapter eight, right? So they're guilty of this very this very thing, right? They said, "Hey, we're sons of Abraham. We are sons of God." So it's interesting here that Jesus makes a scriptural defense of this term to justify himself. Like this isn't blasphemy. This is found in your Bible, right? And so they they say, "Hey, we want to kill you for this." Now we got to think about a couple things. Jesus using a scriptural defense is awesome within itself, right? Because he said, look, I told you, I've showed you, and now he makes a scriptural defense that he's not blaspheming. So why is this important? Well, to me, it's important. is because you see Jesus never broke the law, right? If Jesus blasphemed, if he trips up and he does something wrong, he fails his mission, right? Do you remember with the woman that was caught in the act of adultery, right? And they brought her to Jesus, right? Because they want to trap him. They want him to break the law or speak against the law, right? So it's, the, it's a setup to trap Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Whoever is without sin cast the first stone, right? Set up, failed, right? Because if he says, the law said the woman had to be stoned, but if he condemned her, he fails this whole grace message that he's been preaching for the last two years, right? If he doesn't condemn her, he, he's violating what the law says, and he gets around it. And so he's he's doing the same thing here. He's justifying himself based upon the word, based upon his his words, than based upon his actions. So not to belabor the point here, this is great. We've had a great history lesson. We've learned about Jesus. But I, I think any kind of good message, we have to think, well, what does this mean for us? How does this convince me I should be living? How, What do I need to change about myself in light of these scriptures? What I really want to talk about for the next few minutes is this idea of telling and showing. Is that we too will testify of God through our words and through our actions. The same way Jesus Christ was the Son of God through his words and his actions, friends, we too must testify with words and actions. So let's look at telling first. Jesus told the Jews that he was the Messiah. The Bible tells us we also have to tell. 1 John 4.15 says that whoever confesses the Son of God, that God abides in him and he in God. Matt 10.32, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God, right? Our confession leads us to salvation. When our heart convicts us of our sin, when we confess with our mouth, when we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, what happens? We're saved. That's the the equation right there, friends. If you cry out to Jesus and ask him to forgive you and to save you, what happens? He, he, He forgives you. That's right, Heidi. He forgives you and he saves you. This is our confession. The Bible says that we overcome the evil one through the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Our words are very important. The Bible says that our words will condemn us or they will justify us, right? Every idle word a man speaks, he will be held accountable for. Your words matter, right? We asked this at our our life group on Friday night, but what hurts worse? Physical wounds or wounds that come from someone's mouth, long term? Mouth. Mouth, that's right. I remember getting in fights with my, my younger brother where we're just just slugging each other. I mean, just you know, we kind of had the rule, kind of like the Ron Burgundy thing, where we don't hit each other in the face and we're just, just punching each other. Then ultimately, anger takes over and someone gets socked right right in the face or right in the eye, right? And it hurts really bad. But now I laugh about those stories, but I still remember when someone said something hurtful and it still hurts, right? So so words do matter. So think about the first thing would be is just think about. What comes out of your mouth? What do you say? If you say you're a Christian, this ultimately matters what is coming out of your mouth. When you stand before God and He looks at all those words, will your words convey the idea that you are a son or a daughter of God? Number two, how do we how do we show it? Well, I have to I want to read you a question and we're we're gonna answer this. In Matthew twenty seven, thirty-seven. It says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second unto it is, Thou shalt love their neighbor as thyself. So he said, look, the great two commandments for God is loving God and loving people. And the question is, is how do we love people? Right? So is this just telling people you love them? No, I think the Bible actually doesn't, doesn't say that. That's not how we love people. Is loving people thinking warm thoughts towards them? Uh, that's not what the scripture says either. So what does it mean to love people? 1 John 3, 17, it says, But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So here we see love is actually an action. That love is meeting the needs of people. It's actually doing something for them. So when we say that we tell and we show, the love of God is expressed in our willingness and our ability to, and our obedience to help meet the needs of a broken humanity. James 2.15-17 says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace and be warmed and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does this profit? For also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. See, friends, we can speak a lot with our mouth, but our actions ultimately betray us. If we go back to our text where Jesus said, I'm the son of God, I'm the son of God, I'm the son of man, I'm this, I'm this, and this. If he didn't have any actions, Jesus is just a hype man. It's just talk. But Jesus, time and time again, I think more than anything, proved to be the son of God by what he did. He spoke and he followed it up by action. And if you call yourself a Christian, if you call upon the name of Christ, I implore you that your actions should meet your words. Maybe both of them are failing and mine definitely do at times, right? But they should be equal. Like when you believe something, there's always a corresponding action. Today we're going to celebrate baptism. Three people are getting baptized and baptism Sundays are always just a favorite, right? Because people have an inward witness so then they have an outward expression of what has happened on the inside. Now baptism doesn't save you, but what it is, they're saying I've been saved and therefore I want to have a corresponding action. So we have what we believe played out in an action, right? If you believe, if you're dehydrated, you believe water will satiate your, your thirst, right? But that doesn't become a reality until you actually drink the water. You can believe the water is going to help you all day long, but until you physically drink the water, there's no benefit. So it is with our words. We could speak, James says here, it's like, look, if you say to someone who's naked and has no food and they, they have great need and you have extra food and you have extra clothes you can help them with and you say, be warm and be filled, Man, what an insult. You have the means to do this. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. Here's what true Christianity is. You take from what is yours and you give to that person. That's Christianity. We just cut and dry. True religion before God is to help orphans and widows is what the Bible says. You want to know what religion is? It's not coming to church every Sunday. It's not dressing nice. It's not saying all the right things. It's helping people. God's heart is is always about people you're never wrong helping people now does this mean only other christians no no let's look at galatians 6 9 through 10 it says and let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart therefore as we have opportunity let us do good to all and especially of those who are of the household of faith so it separates this idea it's like look we should be helping everybody This is who Christians are. Did Jesus come for the healthy or the sick? So who are the sick among us? People that are outside of the church. How does the world know that we belong to God? By our love for people. people. That's it. A lot of Christians have given us, the rest of us, bad names because we preach boastful things and loud things and we say all sorts of stuff. Has anyone ever run across a Christian you just wish would stop talking because they're making everybody look bad? five of us, and an extra vote for you six. And, yeah, they're the worst, right? So I, I, I mean, I know these people, I, I work with them. And you're like, man, you're doing more damage than good. You keep saying the name of Jesus, and everybody would, you'd be the first one tossed out of the boat if we are drowning, right? But boy, I also know those kind of Christians who, they don't talk a lot, but boy, their actions just show an awful lot about They love people unconditionally. It doesn't matter their race, their creed, their religion. They're good people, and they're here to help, right? And the name of Christ shines bright. When Jesus was on the scene, he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, and he was eating with those that are destitute, that were broken, whose bodies wouldn't be healed. He was touching lepers, right? People that were just so on the fringes of society, Jesus was seeking these people out. We made a big deal about the Samaritan woman, right? This woman who was half Jew, half Gentile, and she was a woman. This is the most ostracized woman probably in this community. She had five different husbands. We don't know why, whether through death or they've left her, but she was completely marginalized. And Jesus goes out of his way to walk across Samaria and meet this woman and encourage her, right? And she's the first person to actually hear Jesus speaking plainly of who he is, if you want to know the truth. He tells this woman who everybody else had rejected. And then we as Christians, we look around us and we want to stay in our cliques. We want to stay in our groups, right? This is not Christianity, friends. Jesus, he's, he told them and he showed them. Amen. My challenge to you is how are you showing people that you serve a God, right? We've read you a couple examples here. I would say the easiest thing is start meeting needs. Somebody needs something. There's so many people in our community, they just need someone to talk to. Tracer, we have we have some older people in our, in our, our congregation. That they can't come to church for obviously COVID reasons and other reasons they can't get here. And they're crying out for people to talk to them. Right? Just talk on the phone, come over, have coffee, just do something, right? Crying out. These are You don't need money. You don't need resources to meet these kind of needs. Right? Now, as we're wrapping these things up, I want to tell you, and I want to make sure this is very clear, that your works will never save you. When we talk about works, because some people like to confuse these things, that when you're doing good things... Does this mean that you get brownie points with God? Well, no. No amount of good things will make you right with God. If you're not a Christian and you're doing good things, that's good for you. I'm glad you're doing it. But just know that doesn't save you. That faith in Jesus alone is the requirement for salvation. It's the what comes first, you know, the the cart or the horse. I'll tell you, it's faith comes first. We believe in Jesus. And then good works should always follow that. But works will have a purpose because God says, I will judge your works. So if you're a Christian here and you're thinking, no, I, faith alone is good enough. I don't need to do something. Romans 2, 6 through 11 says this. He will render to each one according to his works. To those by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5:10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What I want to leave you with this is it doesn't matter how much God has gifted you. It's being faithful with what you have. If you don't have a ton of financial resources and you're barely making ends meet, does God expect you to feed everybody you come in contact with? Not necessarily. But there is such a thing. as called sacrificial giving, right? We can talk about it. But if you are blessed with means or you're blessed with hospitality or you have a big home where you could entertain people or you have clothes or you have influence or you could drive people, you, could meet, you have free time and, and you can meet with the elderly and all these things, God just has you to be faithful with what you have. Take account of what you have and how can I be faithful with it. So that's my challenge for you today. What are you speaking and what are you doing? Do the two line up Now where are there areas that you can improve on? Where do we need to repent and do this? Let's read our last two verses and we'll close out forty and forty uh, forty through forty-two. It says he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. He said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him. So Jesus follows up this scene at the temple, right? They want to kill him, but they can't because his time isn't yet. Jesus he, When did Jesus have to die? Passover. Right? So he, he, he needs to be that sacrificial lamb So, But this is interesting. We see true faith here, not in signs, but testimony. You notice that they, they said of John, they said, look, John didn't do any signs, but everything he said about Jesus is true. And many people believed in Jesus there. What we see here is not faith and signs, but we have faith and testimony. This is interesting, right? Jesus just got down saying, look, if you don't believe me for what I say, believe it in what I do. And the story wraps up with John's testimony, leading people to Christ about who Jesus is. When people meet Jesus, will our testimony and our actions line up with who Jesus is? Let's simplify it. On the day of judgment, when all people will finally meet Jesus, will our our testimony and our actions line up with who he is? And as one of your elders, I will confess that mine to date has not. And I imagine yours has not either. And this doesn't mean we're without hope, but we have a target to hit, right? We have, this is what we wake up every morning trying to achieve, and many days we'll fail it. And that's why there's grace. Whoever sins, if we confess it, he'll forgive it. Every morning is new. Every morning, we, the Bible says we pick up our cross, and we try again, and we try again, we try again. That's what Christianity is. It's never quitting, right? We're hitting a target that theoretically is impossible, right? But what God looks for us is that we're trying, right? And not just trying in word only or we're given a half-hearted attempt. This is our aim, to be disciples, to be well-pleasing in His sight. Jesus' testimony and his works reflected the Father. My prayer for you today is, friends, that we are on that goal as well, that our works and our words will line up. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for your great grace. Father, we just want to pause and say thank you. Father, as as one of the elders here, let me be the first to repent where I have not hit this, Father. And there's times when I I don't even try. Father, but we know that this is a a journey, Father God, that this is not a one-time event. So I pray that you would continue to remind us, Father, that our words and actions should be that of ones that are Christ-like ones, that are called out from this world, Father, to serve you. And Father, let it start to the top and work all the way through us, Father God, that we would be examples to you. And Father, that our, our faith would be well-spoken of, Father God, because we love people. We love all people, Father God. And help us to do that. Help us not to hate, to backbite, to murmur, to slander, to gossip. Father, help us to be true Christians in this dying world, Father. We be this bright light. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.